0: CHAPTER 55 NEVER INDEX YOUR OWN BOOK As for the life of Amans Mona, the index itself gave a jangling, surrealistic picture of the many conflicting forces that had been brought to bear on her, and of her dismayed reactions to them. Amans Mona, the index said, adopted by Manzano in order to boost Manzano's popularity, pages 194 to 199, page 216 N. Childhood in Compound of House of Hope and Mercy, pages 63 to 81. Childhood Romance with P. Castle, page 72F. Death of Father, page 89, double F. Death of Mother, page 92F. Embarrassed by Role as National Erotic Symbol, pages 80, 95F, 166N, 209, 247N, pages 400 to 406, 566N, and 678. Engaged to P. Castle, page 193. Essential Naivete, pages 67 to 71, page 80, 97F, 116N, 209, 274N, pages 400 to 406, 566N, 678. Lives with Boconan, pages 92 to 98, pages 196 to 197. Poems About, page 2N, 26, 114, 119, 311, 316, 477N, 501, 507, 555N, 689, 718FF, 799FF, 800N, 841, 846FF, 908N, 971, and 974. Poems by, pages 89, 92, and 193. Returns to Manzano, page 199. Returns to Bocconin, page 197. Runs away from Bocconin, page 199 runs away from Manzano, page 197. Tries to make self ugly in order to stop being erotic symbol to islanders, pages 80, 95f, 116n, 209, 247n, pages 400 to 406, page 566n and 678. Tutored by Bocconin, pages 63 to 80. Writes letter to United Nations, page 200. Xylophone virtuoso, page 71. I showed this index entry to the Minton's, asking them if they didn't think it was an enchanting biography in itself, a biography of a reluctant goddess of love. I got an unexpectedly expert answer, as one does in life sometimes. It appeared that Claire Minton, in her time, had been a professional indexer. I had never heard of such a profession before. She told me that she had put her husband through college years before with her earnings as an indexer, that the earnings had been good, and that few people could index well. She said that indexing was a thing that only the most amateurish author undertook to do for his own book. I asked her what she thought of Philip Castle's job. Flattering to the author, insulting to the reader, she said. In a hyphenated word, she observed with the shrewd amiability of an expert, self-indulgent. I'm always embarrassed when I see an index an author has made of his own work. Embarrassed? Oh, it's a revealing thing, an author's index of his own work, she informed me. It's a shameless exhibition, to the trained eye. She can read character from an index, said her husband. Oh, I said, what can you tell about Philip Castle? She smiled faintly. Things I'd better not tell strangers. Sorry. He's obviously in love with this Mona Amans Manzano, she said. That's true of every man in San Lorenzo, I gather. He has mixed feelings about his father, she said. That's true of every man on earth. I egged her on gently. "'He's insecure.' "'What mortal isn't?' I demanded. I didn't know it then, but that was a very Boconinist thing to demand. "'He'll never marry her.' "'Why not?' "'I've said all I'm going to say,' she said. "'I'm gratified to meet an indexer who respects the privacy of others.' "'Never index your own book,' she stated.' A Duprasse, Bokonin tells us, is a valuable instrument for gaining and developing, in the privacy of an interminable love affair, insights that are queer but true. The Minton's cunning exploration of indexes was surely a case in point. A DuPras, Bokonin tells us, is also a sweetly conceited establishment. The Minton's establishment was no exception. Sometime later, Ambassador Minton and I met in the aisle of the airplane, away from his wife and he showed that it was important to him that I respect what his wife could find out from indexes. You know why Castle will never marry the girl, even though he loves her, even though she loves him, even though they grew up together, he whispered. No, sir, I don't. Because he's a homosexual, whispered Minton. She can tell that from an index, too. Chapter 56 A Self-Supporting Squirrel Cage When Lionel Boyd Johnson and Corporal Earl McCabe were washed up naked onto the shore of San Lorenzo, I read, they were greeted by persons far worse off than they. The people of San Lorenzo had nothing but diseases with which they were at a loss to treat or even name. By contrast, Johnson and McCabe had the glittering treasures of literacy, ambition, curiosity, gall, irreverence, health, humor, and considerable information about the outside world. From the Calypsos again... Oh, a very sorry people, yes, did I find here. Oh, they had no music, and they had no beer. And oh, everywhere where they tried to perch belonged to Castle Sugar Incorporated or the Catholic Church. This statement of the property situation in San Lorenzo in 1922 is entirely accurate, according to Philip Castle. Castle Sugar was founded, as it happened, by Philip Castle's great-grandfather. In 1922, it owned every piece of arable land on the island. Castle Sugar's San Lorenzo operations, wrote Young Castle, never showed a profit. But by paying laborers nothing for their labor, the company managed to break even year after year, making just enough money to pay the salaries of the workers' tormentors. The form of government was anarchy, save in limited situations wherein Castle Sugar wanted to own something or to get something done. In such situations, the form of government was feudalism. The nobility was composed of Castle Sugar's plantation bosses, who were heavily armed white men from the outside world. The knighthood was composed of big natives who, for small gifts and silly privileges, would kill or wound or torture on command. The spiritual needs of the people caught in this demoniacal squirrel cage were taken care of by a handful of butterball priests. The San Lorenzo Cathedral, dynamited in 1923, was generally regarded as one of the man-made wonders of the new world, wrote Castle. Chapter 57 The Queasy Dream. That Corporal McCabe and Johnson were able to take command of San Lorenzo was not a miracle in any sense. Many people had taken over San Lorenzo, had invariably found it lightly held. The reason was simple God, in His infinite wisdom, had made the island worthless. Hernando Cortez was the first man to have his sterile conquest of San Lorenzo recorded on paper. Cortes and his men came ashore for fresh water in 1519, named the island, claimed it for Emperor Charles V, and never returned. Subsequent investigations came for gold and diamonds and rubies and spices, found none, burned a few natives for entertainment and heresy, and sailed on. When France claimed San Lorenzo in 1682, wrote Castle, no Spaniards complained. When Denmark claimed San Lorenzo in 1699, no Frenchmen complained. When the Dutch claimed San Lorenzo in 1704, no Danes complained. When England claimed San Lorenzo in 1706, no Dutchmen complained. When Spain reclaimed San Lorenzo in 1720, no Englishmen complained. When, in 1786, African Negroes took command of a British slave ship, ran it ashore on San Lorenzo, and proclaimed San Lorenzo an independent nation, an empire with an emperor, in fact, no Spaniards complained. The emperor was Tumbumwa the only person who ever regarded the island as being worth defending. A maniac, Tumbumwa caused to be erected the San Lorenzo Cathedral and the fantastic fortifications on the north shore of the island, fortifications within which the private residence of the so-called President of the Republic now stands. The fortifications have never been attacked, nor has any sane man ever proposed any reason why they should be attacked. They have never defended anything. Fourteen hundred persons are said to have died while building them. Of these fourteen hundred, about half are said to have been executed in public for substandard zeal. Castle Sugar came into San Lorenzo in 1916, during the sugar boom of the First World War. There was no government at all. The company imagined that even the clay and gravel fields of San Lorenzo could be tilled profitably, with the price of sugar so high. No one complained. When McCabe and Johnson arrived in 1922 and announced that they were placing themselves in charge, Castle Sugar withdrew flaccidly, as though from a queasy dream. Chapter 58 Tyranny with a Difference There was at least one quality of the new conquerors of San Lorenzo that was really new, wrote young Castle. McCabe and Johnson dreamed of making San Lorenzo a utopia. To this end, McCabe overhauled the economy and the laws, Johnson designed a new religion. Castle quoted the Calypsos again. I wanted all things to seem to make some sense, so we could all be happy, yes, instead of tense, and I made up lies so that they all fit nice, and then I made this sad world a paradise. There was a tug at my coat sleeve as I read. I looked up. Little Newt Honecker was standing in the aisle next to me. I thought maybe you'd like to go back to the bar, he said, and hoist a few. So we did hoist and topple a few, and Newt's tongue was loosened enough to tell me some things about Zinka, his Russian midget dancer friend. Their love nest, he told me, had been in his father's cottage on Cape Cod. I may not ever have a marriage, but at least I've had a honeymoon. He told me of idyllic hours he and his Zinka had spent in each other's arms, cradled in Felix Honecker's old white wicker chair, the chair that faced the sea, and Zinka would dance for him. Imagine, a woman dancing just for me. I can see you have no regrets. She broke my heart. I didn't like that much, but that was the price. In this world, you get what you pay for. He proposed a gallant toast. Sweethearts and wives, he cried. Chapter 59 Fasten Your Seatbelts I was in the bar with Newt and H. Lowe Crosby and a couple of strangers when San Lorenzo was sighted. Crosby was talking about piss ants. You know what I mean by a piss ant? I know the term, I said, but it obviously doesn't have the dingling associations for me that it has for you. Crosby was in his cups and had the drunkard's illusion that he could speak frankly, provided he spoke affectionately. He spoke frankly and affectionately of Newt's size, something nobody else in the bar had so far commented on. I don't mean a little feller like this. Crosby hung a ham hand on Newt's shoulder. "'It isn't size that makes a man a piss-ant. "'It's the way he thinks. "'I've seen men four times as big as this little fella here, "'and they were piss-ants. "'And I seen little fellers. "'Well, not this little, actually, but pretty damn little, by God. "'And I'd call them real men.' "'Thanks,' said Newt pleasantly, "'not even glancing at the monstrous hand on his shoulder. "'Never had I seen a human being better adjusted "'to such a humiliating physical handicap. "'I shuddered with admiration.' You were talking about piss-ants, I said to Crosby, hoping to get the weight of his hand off Newt. Damn right I was, Crosby straightened up. You haven't told us what a piss-ant is yet, I said. A piss-ant is somebody who thinks he's so damn smart he never can keep his mouth shut. No matter what anybody says, he's got to argue with it. You say you like something, and by God, he'll tell you why you're wrong to like it. A piss-ant does his best to make you feel like a boob all the time. No matter what you say, he knows better. Not a very attractive characteristic, I suggested. My daughter wanted to marry a pissant once, said Crosby darkly. Did she? I squashed him like a bug. Crosby hammered on the bar, remembering things the pissant had said and done. Jesus, he said. We've all been to college. His gaze lit on Newt again. You go to college? Cornell, said Newt. Cornell? Cornell? cried Crosby gladly. My God, I went to Cornell! So did he. Newt nodded at me. Three Cornellians, all in the same plane, said Crosby, and we had another Grand Falloon Festival on our hands. When it subsided some, Crosby asked Newt what he did. I paint. Houses? Pictures? I'll be damned, said Crosby. Return to your seats and fasten your seat belts, please, warned the airline hostess. We're over Manzano Airport, Bolivar, San Lorenzo. Christ! Now wait just a goddamn minute here, said Crosby, looking down at Newt. All of a sudden I realize you've got a name I've heard before. My father was the father of the atomic bomb. Newt didn't say Felix Honecker was one of the fathers. He said Felix was the father. Is that so? asked Crosby. That's so. I was thinking about something else, said Crosby. "'He had to think hard. "'Something about a dancer. "'I think we'd better get back to our seats,' said Newt, tightening some. "'Something about a Russian dancer. "'Crosby was sufficiently addled by booze to see no harm in thinking out loud. "'I remember an editorial about how maybe the dancer was a spy. "'Please, gentlemen,' said the stewardess, "'you really must get back to your seats and fasten your belts.' Newt looked up at H. Low Crosby innocently. "'You sure the name was Honecker?' and in order to eliminate any chance of mistaken identity, he spelled the name for Crosby. "'I could be wrong,' said H. Lowe Crosby. Chapter 60. An Underprivileged Nation The island, seen from the air, was an amazingly regular rectangle. Cruel and useless stone needles were thrust up from the sea. They sketched a circle around it. At the south end of the island was the port city of Bolivar. It was the only city— It was the capital. It was built on a marshy table. The runways of Manzano Airport were on its waterfront. Mountains rose abruptly to the north of Bolivar, crowding the remainder of the island with their brutal humps. They were called the Sangre de Cristo Mountains, but they looked like pigs at a trough to me. Bolivar had had many names, Cosma Cosma, Santa Maria, St. Louis, St. George, and Port Glory among them. It was given its present name by Johnson and McCabe in 1922, was named in honor of Simon Bolivar, the great Latin American idealist and hero. When Johnson and McCabe came upon the city, it was built of twigs, tin, crates, and mud, rested on the catacombs of a trillion happy scavengers, catacombs in a sour mash of slop, feculence, and slime. Yeah, that was pretty much the way I found it too, except for the new architectural false face along the waterfront. Johnson and McCabe had failed to raise the people from misery and muck. Papa Manzano had failed too. Everybody was bound to fail, for San Lorenzo was as unproductive as an equal area in the Sahara or the polar ice cap. At the same time, it had as dense a population as could be found anywhere, India and China not excluded. There were 450 inhabitants for each uninhabitable square mile. During the idealistic phase of McCabe's and Johnson's reorganization of San Lorenzo, it was announced that the country's total income would be divided among all adult persons in equal shares, wrote Philip Castle. The first and only time this was tried, each share came to between six and seven dollars. Chapter 61. What a Corporal Was Worth In the customs shed at Manzano Airport, we were all required to submit to a luggage inspection and to convert what money we intended to spend in San Lorenzo into the local currency into corporals, which Papa Manzano insisted were worth fifty American cents. The shed was neat and new, but plenty of signs had already been slapped on the walls, higgly-piggly. Anybody caught practicing Boconanism in San Lorenzo, said one, will die on the hook. Another poster featured a picture of Bokonin, a scrawny old colored man who was smoking a cigar. He looked clever and kind and amused. Under the picture were the words, "'Wanted, dead or alive, ten thousand corporals reward.'" I took a closer look at that poster and found reproduced at the bottom of it some sort of police identification form Bocconin had had to fill out way back in 1929. It was reproduced, apparently, to show Bocconin hunters what his fingerprints and handwriting were like. But what interested me were some of the words Bocconin had chosen to put into the blanks in 1929. Wherever possible, he had taken the cosmic view, had taken into consideration, for instance, such things as the shortness of life and the longness of eternity. He reported his avocation as being alive. He reported his principal occupation as being dead. This is a Christian nation. All footplay will be punished by the hook, said another sign. The sign was meaningless to me, since I had not yet learned that Boconanists mingled their souls by pressing the bottoms of their feet together. And the greatest mystery of all, since I had not read all of Philip Castle's book, was how Boconan, bosom friend of Corporal McCabe, had come to be an outlaw. Chapter 62. Why Hazel Wasn't Scared There were seven of us who got off at San Lorenzo. Newton Angela, Ambassador Minton and his wife, H. Lowe Crosby and his wife, and I. When we had cleared customs, we were herded outdoors and onto a reviewing stand. There we faced a very quiet crowd. Five thousand or more San Lorenzans stared at us. The islanders were oatmeal colored. The people were thin. There wasn't a fat person to be seen. Every person had teeth missing. Many legs were bowed or swollen. Not one pair of eyes was clear. The women's breasts were bare and paltry. The men wore loose loincloths that did little to conceal peonies like pendulums on grandfather clocks. There were many dogs, but not one barked. There were many infants, but not one cried. Here and there someone coughed, and that was all. A military band stood at attention before the crowd. It did not play. There was a color guard before the band. It carried two banners, the Stars and Stripes, and the Flag of San Lorenzo. The Flag of San Lorenzo consisted of a Marine Corporal's chevrons on a royal blue field. The banners hung lank in the windless day. I imagined that somewhere far away I heard the blamming of a sledge on a brazen drum. There was no such sound. My soul was simply resonating the beat of the brassy, clanging heat of the San Lorenzen climb. I'm sure glad it's a Christian country. Hazel Crosby whispered to her husband, "'Or I'd be a little scared.' Behind us was a xylophone. There was a glittering sign on the xylophone. The sign was made of garnets and rhinestones. The sign said, "'Mona.'" Chapter 63. Reverent and Free. To the left side of our reviewing stand were six propeller-driven fighter planes in a row, military assistance from the United States to San Lorenzo. On the fuselage of each plane was painted, with childish blood lust, a boa constrictor which was crushing a devil to death. Blood came from the devil's ears, nose, and mouth. A pitchfork was slipping from satanic red fingers. Before each plane stood an oatmeal-colored pilot, silent too. Then, above that humid silence, there came a nagging song like the song of a gnat. It was a siren approaching. The siren was on Papa's glossy black Cadillac limousine. The limousine came to a stop before us, tires smoking. Out climbed Papa Manzano, his adopted daughter, Mona Amans Manzano, and Franklin Honecker. At a limp, imperious signal from Papa, the crowd sang the San Lorenzen national anthem. Its melody was home on the range. The words had been written in 1922 by Lionel Boyd Johnson, by Bokonin. The words were these. O ours is a land, where the living is grand, and the men are as fearless as sharks. The women are pure, and we always are sure, that our children will all toe their marks. San, San Lorenzo, what a rich lucky island are we! Our enemies quail, for they know they will fail, against people so reverent and free. Chapter 64 Peace and Plenty And then the crowd was deathly still again. Papa and Mona and Frank joined us on the reviewing stand. One snare drum played as they did so. The drumming stopped when Papa pointed a finger at the drummer. He wore a shoulder holster on the outside of his blouse. The weapon in it was a chromium-plated forty five. He was an old, old man, as so many members of my carass were. He was in poor shape. His steps were small and bounceless. He was still a fat man, but his lard was melting fast, for his simple uniform was loose. The balls of his hop-toed eyes were yellow. His hands trembled. His personal bodyguard was Major General Franklin Honecker, whose uniform was white. Frank, thin-wristed, narrow-shouldered, looked like a child kept up long after his customary bedtime. On his breast was a medal. I observed the two, Papa and Frank, with some difficulty, not because my view was blocked, but because I could not take my eyes off Mona. I was thrilled, heartbroken, hilarious, insane. Every greedy, unreasonable dream I'd ever had about what a woman should be came true in Mona. There, God love her warm and creamy soul, was peace and plenty forever. That girl, and she was only eighteen, was rapturously serene. She seemed to understand all, and to be all there was to understand. In the books of Bocconin she is mentioned by name. One thing Bocconin says of her is this. Mona has the simplicity of the all. Her dress was white and Greek. She wore flat sandals on her small brown feet. Her pale gold hair was lank and long. Her hips were a lyre. Oh, God, peace and plenty forever. She was the one beautiful girl in San Lorenzo. She was the national treasure Papa had adopted her according to Philip Castle, in order to mingle divinity with the harshness of his rule. The xylophone was rolled to the front of the stand, and Mona played it. She played, When Day Is Done. It was all tremolo, swelling, fading, swelling again. The crowd was intoxicated by beauty. And then it was time for Papa to greet us. Chapter 65 A Good Time to Come to San Lorenzo Papa was a self-educated man who had been major domo to Corporal McCabe. He had never been off the island. He spoke American English passably well. Everything that any one of us said on the reviewing stand was bellowed out at the crowd through doomsday horns. Whatever went out through those horns gabbled down a wide, short boulevard at the back of the crowd, ricocheted off three glass-faced new buildings at the end of the boulevard, and came crackling back. "'Welcome,' said Papa." You are coming to the best friend America ever had. America is misunderstood many places, but not here, Mr. Ambassador. He bowed to H. Low Crosby, the bicycle manufacturer, mistaking him for the new ambassador. I know you've got a good country here, Mr. President, said Crosby. Everything I ever heard about it sounds great to me. Uh, there's just one thing. Oh? I'm not the ambassador, said Crosby. I wish I was, but I'm just a plain, ordinary businessman. It hurt him to say who the real ambassador was. This man over here is the big cheese. Ah! Papa smiled at his mistake. The smile went away suddenly. Some pain inside of him made him wince, then made him hunch over, close his eyes, made him concentrate on surviving the pain. Frank Honecker went to his support, feebly, incompetently. Are you all right? "'Excuse me,' Papa whispered at last, straightening up some. There were tears in his eyes. He brushed them away, straightening up all the way. "'I beg your pardon.' He seemed to be in doubt for a moment as to where he was, as to what was expected of him. And then he remembered. He shook Horlick Minton's hand. "'Here you are among friends.' "'I'm sure of it,' said Minton gently. "'Christian,' said Papa. "'Good.' Anti-communists, said Papa. Good. No communists here, said Papa. They fear the hook too much. I should think they would, said Minton. You have picked a very good time to come to us, said Papa. Tomorrow will be one of the happiest days in the history of our country. Tomorrow is our greatest national holiday, the day of the Hundred Martyrs to Democracy. It will also be the day of the engagement of Major General Honecker to Mona Amans Manzano, to the most precious person in my life and in the life of San Lorenzo. I wish you much happiness, Miss Manzano, said Minton warmly, and I congratulate you, General Honecker. The two young people nodded their thanks. Minton now spoke of the so-called Hundred Martyrs to Democracy, and he told a whooping lie there is not an American schoolchild who does not know the story of San Lorenzo's noble sacrifice in World War II. The hundred brave San Lorenzans, whose day tomorrow is, gave as much as freedom-loving men can. The President of the United States has asked me to be his personal representative at ceremonies tomorrow, to cast a wreath, the gift of the American people, to the people of San Lorenzo on the sea. The people of San Lorenzo thank you and your President and the generous people of the United States of America for their thoughtfulness, said Papa. We would be honored if you would cast the wreath into the sea during the engagement party tomorrow. The honor is mine. Papa commanded us all to honor him with our presence at the wreath ceremony and engagement party next day. We were to appear at his palace at noon. What children these two will have, Papa said, inviting us to stare at Frank and Mona. What blood! What blood! "'What beauty!' "'The pain hit him again. "'He again closed his eyes to huddle himself around that pain. "'He waited for it to pass, but it did not pass. "'Still in agony, he turned away from us, "'faced the crowd and the microphone. "'He tried to gesture at the crowd. "'Failed. "'He tried to say something to the crowd. "'Failed. "'And then the words came out. "'Go home!' he cried, strangling. "'Go home!' the crowd scattered like leaves. Papa faced us again, still grotesque in pain, and then he collapsed. Chapter 66. The Strongest Thing There Is He wasn't dead, but he certainly looked dead, except that now and then, in the midst of all that seeming death, he would give a shivering twitch. Frank protested loudly that Papa wasn't dead, that he couldn't be dead. He was frantic, "'Papa, you can't die! You can't!' Frank loosened Papa's collar and blouse, rubbed his wrists. "'Give him air! Give Papa air!' The fighter plane pilots came running over to help us. One had sense enough to go for the airport ambulance. The band and the color guard, which had received no orders, remained at quivering attention. I looked for Mona, found that she was still serene and had withdrawn to the rail of the reviewing stand. Death, if there was going to be death, did not alarm her.' Standing next to her was a pilot. He was not looking at her, but he had a perspiring radiance that I attributed to his being so near her. Papa now regained something like consciousness. With a hand that flapped like a captured bird, he pointed at Frank. "'You!' he said. We all fell silent in order to hear his words. His lips moved, but we could hear nothing but bubbling sounds. Somebody had what looked like a wonderful idea then, what looks like a hideous idea in retrospect. Someone, a pilot, I think, took the microphone from its mount and held it by Papa's bubbling lips in order to amplify his words. So death rattles and all sorts of spastic yodels bounced off the new buildings. And then came words. You, he said to Frank hoarsely, You, Franklin Honecker, you will be the next president of San Lorenzo. Science! You have Science! "'Science is the strongest thing there is.' "'Science!' said Papa. "'Ice!' He rolled his yellow eyes, and he passed out again. I looked at Mona. Her expression was unchanged. The pilot next to her, however, had his features composed in the catatonic, orgiastic rigidity of one receiving the Congressional Medal of Honor. I looked down, and I saw what I was not meant to see— Mona had slipped off her sandal. Her small brown foot was bare, and with that foot, she was kneading and kneading and kneading, obscenely kneading the instep of the flyer's boot. Chapter sixty-seven, Hayuka. Papa didn't die—not then. He was rolled away in the airport's big red meat wagon. The mittens were taken to their embassy by an American limousine. Newt and Angela were taken to Frank's house in a San Lorenzen limousine. The Crosbys and I were taken to the Casamona Hotel in San Lorenzo's one taxi, a Hearst like nineteen thirty nine Chrysler limousine with jump seats. The name on the side of the cab was Castle Transportation Incorporated. The cab was owned by Philip Castle, the owner of the Casamona, the son of the completely unselfish man I had come to interview. The Crosbys and I were both upset. Our consternation was expressed in questions we had to have answered at once. The Crosbys wanted to know who Bocconin was. They were scandalized by the idea that anyone should be opposed to Papa Manzano. Irrelevantly, I found that I had to know at once who the hundred martyrs to democracy had been. The Crosbys got their answer first. They could not understand the San Lorenzen dialect, so I had to translate for them. Crosby's basic question to our driver was, who the hell is this pissant Bokonin, anyway? Very bad man, said the driver. What he actually said was, Bory Balmon. A communist? asked Crosby, when he heard my translation. Oh, sure. Has he got any following? Sir. Does anybody think he's any good? Oh, no, sir, said the driver piously. Nobody that crazy. Why hasn't he been caught? demanded Crosby. Hard man to find, said the driver. Very smart. Well, people must be hiding him and giving him food or he'd be caught by now. Nobody hide him. Nobody feed him. Everybody too smart to do that. You sure? Oh, sure, said the driver. Anybody feed that crazy old man. Anybody give him place to sleep. They get the hook. Nobody want the hook. He pronounced that last word. Hayuk. Chapter 68 I asked the driver who the Hundred Martyrs to Democracy had been. The boulevard we were going down, I saw, was called the Boulevard of the Hundred Martyrs to Democracy. The driver told me that San Lorenzo had declared war on Germany and Japan an hour after Pearl Harbor was attacked. San Lorenzo conscripted a hundred men to fight on the side of democracy. These hundred men were put on a ship bound for the United States, where they were to be armed and trained. The ship was sunk by a German submarine right outside of Bolivar Harbor. Those, sir, he said, Those, sir, he'd said in dialect, are the hundred martyrs to democracy. Chapter 69 A Big Mosaic The Crosbys and I had the curious experience of being the very first guests of a new hotel. We were the first to sign the register of the Casa Mona, the Crosbys got to the desk ahead of me, but H. Low Crosby was so startled by a holy blank register that he couldn't bring himself to sign. He had to think about it a while. "'You sign,' he said to me. And then, defying me to think he was superstitious, he declared his wish to photograph a man who was making a huge mosaic on the fresh plaster of the lobby wall. The mosaic was a portrait of Mona Amans Manzano. It was twenty feet high. The man who was working on it was young and muscular." He sat at the top of a stepladder. He wore nothing but a pair of white duck trousers. He was a white man. The mosaicist was making the fine hairs on the nape of Mona's swan neck out of chips of gold. Crosby went over to photograph him, came back to report that the man was the biggest piss ant he'd ever met. Crosby was the color of tomato juice when he reported this. You can't say a damn thing to him that he won't turn inside out. So I went over to the mosaicist, watched him for a while and then I told him, I envy you. I always knew, he sighed, that if I waited long enough, somebody would come and envy me. I kept telling myself to be patient that sooner or later somebody envious would come along. Are you an American? That happiness is mine. He went right on working. He was incurious as to what I looked like. Do you want to take my photograph too? Do you mind? I think, therefore I am, therefore I am photographable. I'm afraid I don't have my camera with me. Well, for Christ's sake, get it! You're not one of those people who trusts his memory, are you? I don't think I'll forget that face you're working on very soon. You'll forget it when you're dead, and so will I. When I'm dead, I'm going to forget everything, and I'd advise you to do the same. Has she been posing for this, or are you working from photographs, or what? I'm working from, or what? 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 I'm working from... or what? He tapped his temple. It's all in this enviable head of mine. You know her? That happiness is mine. Franklin Honecker's a lucky man. Franklin Honecker's a piece of shit. You're certainly candid. I'm also rich. Glad to hear it. If you want an expert opinion, money doesn't necessarily make people happy. Thanks for the information. You've just saved me a lot of trouble. I was just about to make some money. How? Writing. I wrote a book once. Oh, what was it called? San Lorenzo, he said. The land, the history, the people. Chapter 70, tutored by Boconan. You, I take it, I said to the mosaicist, are Philip Castle, son of Julian Castle. That happiness is mine. I'm here to see your father. Are you an aspirin salesman? No. Too bad. Father's low on aspirin. How about miracle drugs? Father enjoys pulling off a miracle now and then. I'm not a drug salesman. I'm a writer. What makes you think a writer isn't a drug salesman? (laughs) I'll accept that. Guilty as charged. Father needs some kind of book to read to people who are dying or in terrible pain. I don't suppose you've written anything like that. Not yet. I think there'd be money in it. There's another valuable tip for you. Well, I suppose I could overhaul the 23rd Psalm, switch it around a little so nobody would realize it wasn't original with me. Bokonin tried to overhaul it, he told me. Bokonin found out he couldn't change a word. You know him, too? That happiness is mine. He was my tutor when I was a little boy. He gestured sentimentally at the mosaic. He was Mona's tutor, too. Was he a good teacher? Mona and I can both read and write and do simple sums, said Castle, if that's what you mean. Chapter 71. The Happiness of Being an American H. Low Crosby came over to have another go at Castle, the pissant. What do you call yourself? sneered Crosby. A beatnik or what? I call myself a Boconanist. That's against the law in this country, isn't it? I happen to have the happiness of being an American. I've been able to say I'm a Boconanist any time I damn please, and so far nobody's bothered me at all. Well, I believe in obeying the laws of whatever country I happen to be in. You are not telling me the news. Crosby was livid. Screw you, Jack. Screw you, Jasper, said Castle mildly. And screw Mother's Day and Christmas, too. Crosby marched across the lobby to the desk clerk, and he said, I want to report that man over there, that pissant, that so-called artist. You got a nice little country here that's trying to attract the tourist trade and new investment in industry. The way that man talked to me, I don't ever want to see San Lorenzo again. And any friend who asks me about San Lorenzo, I'll tell him to keep the hell away. You may be getting a nice picture on the wall over there, but by God, the ant who's making it is the most insulting, discouraging son of a bitch I ever met in my life. The clerk looked sick. Sir, I'm listening, said Crosby, full of fire. Sir, he owns the hotel. Chapter 72 THE PISSAND HILTON H. Low Crosby and his wife checked out of the Casamona. Crosby called it the Pissand Hilton, and he demanded quarters at the American Embassy. So I was the only guest in a one-hundred-room hotel. My room was a pleasant one. It faced, as did all the rooms, the Boulevard of the Hundred Martyrs to Democracy, Manzano Airport, and Boulevard Harbor beyond. The Casamona was built like a bookcase, with solid sides and back, and with a front of blue-green glass. The squalor and misery of the city, being to the sides and back of the Casamona, were impossible to see. My room was air-conditioned. It was almost chilly, and coming from the blamming heat into that chilliness, I sneezed. There were fresh flowers on my bedside table, but my bed had not yet been made. There wasn't even a pillow on the bed. There was simply a bare, brand-new Beautyrest mattress, and there weren't any coat-hangers in the closet. And there wasn't any toilet paper in the bathroom. So I went out in the corridor to see if there was a chambermaid to equip me a little more completely. There wasn't anybody out there, but there was a door open at the far end and very faint sounds of life. I went to this door and found a large suite paved with drop cloths. It was being painted, but the two painters weren't painting when I appeared. They were sitting on a shelf that ran the width of the window wall. They had their shoes off, they had their eyes closed. They were facing each other. They were pressing the soles of their bare feet together. Each grasped his own ankles, giving himself the rigidity of a triangle. I cleared my throat. The two rolled off the shelf and fell to the spattered drop cloth. They landed on their hands and knees, and they stayed in that position, their behinds in the air, their noses close to the ground. They were expecting to be killed. Excuse me, I said, amazed. Don't tell, begged one querulously. Please, please don't tell. Tell what? What you saw. I didn't see anything. If you tell, he said, and he put his cheek to the floor and looked up at me beseechingly. If you tell, we'll die on the Hiuk. Look, friends, I said, either I came in too early or too late, but I tell you again, I didn't see anything worth mentioning to anybody. Please get up. They got up, their eyes still on me. They trembled and cowered. I convinced them at last that I would never tell what I had seen. What I had seen, of course, was the bokoninist ritual of Boko Maru, or the mingling of awarenesses. We Bokonists believe that it is impossible to be soul to soul with another person without loving the person, provided the feet of both persons are clean and nicely tended. The basis for the foot ceremony is this calypso. We will touch our feet, yes, yes, for all we're worth, and we will love each other, yes, yes, like we love our Mother Earth. Chapter 73. Black Death When I got back to my room, I found that Philip Castle, mosaicist, historian, self-indexer, pissant, and hotel-keeper, was installing a roll of toilet paper in my bathroom. "'Thank you very much,' I said. "'You're entirely welcome. This is what I call a hotel with a real heart.' How many hotel owners would take such a direct interest in the comfort of a guest? How many hotel owners have just one guest? You used to have three. Ah, those were the days. You know, I may be speaking out of turn, but I find it hard to understand how a person of your interests and talents would be attracted to the hotel business. He frowned perplexedly. I don't seem to be as good with guests as I might, do I? I knew some people in the hotel school at Cornell, and I... Can't help feeling they would have treated the Crosbys somewhat differently. He nodded uncomfortably. I know, I know. He flapped his arms. Damned if I know why I built this hotel. Something to do with my life, I guess. A way to be busy, a way not to be lonesome. He shook his head. It was be a hermit or open a hotel, with nothing in between. Weren't you raised at your father's hospital? That's right, Mona and I both grew up there. "'Well, aren't you at all tempted to do with your life what your father's done with his?' Young Castle smiled wanly, avoiding a direct answer. "'He's a funny person, father is,' he said. "'I think you'll like him.' "'I expect to. There aren't many people who've been as unselfish as he has.' "'One time,' said Castle, "'when I was about fifteen, there was a mutiny near here on a Greek ship bound from Hong Kong to Havana with a load of wicker furniture. The mutineers got control of the ship.' Didn't know how to run her and smashed her up on the rocks near Papa Manzano's castle. Everybody drowned but the rats. The rats and the wicker furniture came ashore. That seemed to be the end of the story, but I couldn't be sure. So? So, some people got free furniture and some people got bubonic plague. At Father's Hospital we had 1,400 deaths inside of ten days. Have you ever seen anybody die of bubonic plague? That unhappiness has not been mine. The lymph glands in the groin and the armpits swell to the size of grapefruit. I can well believe it. After death, the body turns black. Coals to Newcastle, in the case of San Lorenzo. When the plague was having everything its own way, the house of hope and mercy in the jungle looked like Auschwitz or Buchenwald. We had stacks of dead so deep and wide that a bulldozer actually stalled, trying to shove them toward a common grave. Father worked without sleep for days. Worked not only without sleep, but without saving many lives, either. Castle's grisly tale was interrupted by the ringing of my telephone. "'My God!' said Castle. "'I didn't even know the telephones were connected yet.' I picked up the phone. "'Hello?' It was Major General Franklin Honecker who had called me up. He sounded out of breath and scared stiff. "'Listen, you got to come out to my house right away. We've got to have a talk. It could be a very important thing in your life.' "'Well, could you give me some idea?' "'Not on the phone, not on the phone.' "'You come to my house. You come right away. Please?' "'All right. I'm not kidding you. This is a really important thing in your life. This is the most important thing ever.' He hung up. "'What was that all about?' asked Castle. "'I haven't the slightest idea. Franklin Honecker wants to see me right away.' "'Take your time. Relax. He's a moron.' "'He said it was important.' "'How does he know what's important? I could carve a better man out of a banana.' "'Well, finish your story, anyway.' Oh, where was I? Uh, The bubonic plague. The bulldozer was stalled by corpses. Oh, yes. Anyway, one sleepless night, I stayed up with Father while he worked. It was all we could do to find a live patient to treat. In bed after bed after bed, we found dead people. And Father started giggling, Castle continued. He couldn't stop. He walked out into the night with his flashlight. He was still giggling. He was making the flashlight beam dance over all the dead people stacked outside. He put his hand on my head, and do you know what that marvelous man said to me? asked Castle. Nope. Son, my father said to me, some day this will all be yours. Chapter seventy four Cat's Cradle I went to Frank's house in San Lorenzo's one taxicab. We passed through scenes of hideous want. We climbed the slope of Mount McCabe. The air grew cooler. There was mist. Frank's house had once been the home of Nestor Amans, father of Mona, architect of the House of Hope and Mercy in the jungle. Amans had designed it. It straddled a waterfall, had a terrace cantilevered out into the mist rising from the fall. It was a cunning lattice of very light steel posts and beams. The interstices of the lattice were variously open, chinked with native stone, glazed, or curtained by sheets of canvas. The effect of the house was not so much to enclose as to announce that a man had been whimsically busy there. A servant greeted me politely and told me that Frank wasn't home yet. Frank was expected at any moment. Frank had left orders to the effect that I was to be made happy and comfortable, and that I was to stay for supper and the night. The servant, who introduced himself as Stanley, was the first plump San Lorenzen I had seen. Stanley led me to my room led me around the heart of the house, down a staircase of living stone, a staircase sheltered or exposed by steel-framed rectangles at random. My bed was a foam-rubber slab on a stone shelf, a shelf of living stone. The walls of my chamber were canvas. Stanley demonstrated how I might roll them up or down as I pleased. I asked Stanley if anybody else was home, and he told me that only Newt was. Newt, he said, was out on the cantilevered terrace painting a picture Angela, he said, had gone sightseeing to the House of Hope and Mercy in the jungle. I went out onto the giddy terrace that straddled the waterfall and found little Newt asleep in a yellow butterfly chair. The painting on which Newt had been working was set on an easel next to the aluminum railing. The painting was framed in a misty view of sky, sea, and valley. Newt's painting was small and black and warty. It consisted of scratches made in a black, gummy impasto. The scratches formed a sort of spider's web— and I wondered if they might not be the sticky nets of human futility hung up on a moonless night to dry. I did not wake up the midget who had made this dreadful thing. I smoked, listening to imagined voices in the water sounds. What awakened Little Newt was an explosion far away below. It caromed up the valley and went to God. It was a cannon on the waterfront of Bolivar, Frank's major domo told me. It was fired every day at five. Little Newt stirred. While still half-snoozing, he put his black, painty hands to his mouth and chin, leaving black smears there. He rubbed his eyes and made black smears around them, too. "'Hello,' he said to me, sleepily. "'Hello,' I said. "'I like your painting. You see what it is?' "'I suppose it means something different to everyone who sees it.' "'It's a cat's cradle.' "'Aha!' I said. "'Very good. The scratches are string, right?' "'One of the oldest games there is, cat's cradle.' even the Eskimos know it. You don't say. For maybe a hundred thousand years or more, grown-ups have been waving tangles of string in their children's faces. Um. Newt remained curled in the chair. He held out his painty hands as though a cat's cradle were strung between them. No wonder kids grow up crazy. A cat's cradle is nothing but a bunch of X's between somebody's hands, and little kids look and look and look at all those X's. And? No damn cat! and no damn cradle chapter 75 give my regards to albert schweitzer and then angela honecker connors newt's beanpole sister came in with julian castle father of philip and founder of the house of hope and mercy in the jungle castle wore a baggy white linen suit and a string tie he had a scraggly mustache he was bald he was scrawny he was a saint i think He introduced himself to Newt and to me on the cantilevered terrace. He forestalled all references to his possible saintliness by talking out of the corner of his mouth like a movie gangster. I understand you are a follower of Albert Schweitzer, I said to him. At a distance, he gave a criminal sneer. I've never met the gentleman. Well, he must surely know of your work just as you know of his. Maybe and maybe not. You ever see him? No. You ever expect to see him? someday maybe I will. Well, said Julian Castle, in case you run across Dr. Schweitzer in your travels, you might tell him that he is not my hero. He lit a big cigar. When the cigar was going good and hot, he pointed its red end at me. You can tell him he isn't my hero, he said, but you can also tell him that thanks to him, Jesus Christ is. Well, I think he'll be glad to hear it. I don't give a damn if he is or not. This is something between Jesus and me. CHAPTER 76 JULIAN CASTLE AGREES WITH NEWT THAT EVERYTHING IS MEANINGLESS Julian Castle and Angela went to Newt's painting. Castle made a pinhole of a curled index finger, squinted at the painting through it. "'What do you think of it?' I asked him. "'It's black.' "'What is it, hell?' "'It means whatever it means,' said Newt. "'Then it's hell,' snarled Castle. "'I was told a moment ago that it was a cat's cradle,' I said." Inside information always helps, said Castle. I don't think it's very nice, Angela complained. I think it's ugly, but I don't know anything about modern art. Sometimes I wish Newt would take some lessons so he could know for sure if he was doing something or not. Self-taught, are you? Julian Castle asked Newt. Isn't everybody? Newt inquired. Very good answer. Castle was respectful. I undertook to explain the deeper significance of the cat's cradle since Newt seemed disinclined to go through that song and dance again. And Castle nodded sagely. So, this is a picture of the meaninglessness of it all. I couldn't agree more. Do you really agree? I asked. A minute ago you said something about Jesus. Who? said Castle. Jesus Christ? Oh, said Castle. Him. He shrugged. People have to talk about something just to keep their voice boxes in working order, so they'll have good voice boxes in case there's ever anything really meaningful to say. I see. I knew I wasn't going to have an easy time writing a popular article about him. I was going to have to concentrate on his saintly deeds and ignore entirely the satanic things he thought and said. You may quote me, he said. Man is vile, and man makes nothing worth making, knows nothing worth knowing." He leaned down and shook little Newt's painty hand. Right? Newt nodded, seemed to suspect momentarily that the case had been a little overstated. Right. And then the saint marched to Newt's painting and took it from its easel. He beamed at us all. Garbage, like everything else. And he threw the painting off the cantilevered terrace. It sailed out on an updraft, stalled, boomeranged back, sliced into the waterfall. There was nothing little Newt could say. Angela spoke first. You've got paint all over your face, honey. Go wash it off. Chapter 77 Aspirin and Boko Maru Tell me, doctor, I said to Julian Castle, how is Papa Manzano? How would I know? I thought you'd probably been treating him. We don't speak, Castle smiled. He doesn't speak to me, that is. The last thing he said to me, which was about three years ago was that the only thing that kept me off the hook was my American citizenship. What have you done to offend him? You come down here and with your own money found a free hospital for his people? Papa doesn't like the way we treat the whole patient, said Castle. Particularly the whole patient when he's dying. At the House of Hope and Mercy in the jungle, we administer the last rites of the Boconanist Church to those who want them. What are the rites like? Very simple, they start with a responsive reading. You want to respond?" I'm not that close to death just now, if you don't mind. He gave me a grisly wink. You're wise to be cautious. People taking the last rites have a way of dying on cue. I think we could keep you from going all the way, though, if we didn't touch feet. Feet? He told me about the Bocconinist attitude relative to feet. That explains something I saw in the hotel. I told him about the two painters on the window sill. It works, you know, he said. People who do that really do feel better about each other and the world. Hmm. Boko Maru, sir. That's what the foot business is called, said Castle. It works. I'm grateful for things that work. but many things do work, you know. I suppose not. I couldn't possibly run that hospital of mine if it weren't for aspirin and Boko Maru. I gather, I said, that there are still several Boconanists on the island, despite the laws, despite the Hayuk... Uh, he laughed. You haven't caught on yet. To to what? Everybody on San Lorenzo is a devout Boconinist, the Hayuk, notwithstanding. Chapter 78 Ring of Steel When Boconan and McCabe took over this miserable country years ago, said Julian Castle, they threw out the priests, and then Boconan, cynically and playfully, invented a new religion. I know, I said. Well, when it became evident that no governmental or economic reform was going to make the people much less miserable, the religion became the one real instrument of hope. Truth was the enemy of the people because the truth was so terrible. So Bokonin made it his business to provide the people with better and better lies. Now, how did he come to be an outlaw? It was his own idea. He asked McCabe to outlaw him and his religion, too, in order to give the religious life of the people more zest, more tang. He wrote a little poem about it, incidentally. Castle quoted this poem, which does not appear in the books of Bocconin. So I said goodbye to government, and I gave my reason that a really good religion is a form of treason. Bocconin suggested the hook, too, as the proper punishment for Bocconinists, he said. It was something he'd seen in the Chamber of Horrors at Madame Tussauds. He winked ghoulishly. That was for zest, too. Did many people die on the hook? Not at first, not at first. At first it was all make-believe. Rumors were cunningly circulated about executions, but no one really knew anyone who had died that way. McCabe had a good old time making bloodthirsty threats against the Boconanists, which was everybody. And Boconan went into cozy hiding in the jungle, Castle continued, where he wrote and preached all day long and ate good things his disciples brought him. McCabe would organize the unemployed, which was practically everybody, into great Boconan hunts. About every six months, McCabe would announce triumphantly that Bocconin was surrounded by a ring of steel, which was remorselessly closing in. And then the leaders of the remorseless ring would have to report to McCabe, full of chagrin and apoplexy, that Bocconin had done the impossible. He had escaped, had evaporated, had lived to preach another day. Miracle! Chapter 79. Why McCabe's Soul Grew coarse. McCabe and Bocconin did not succeed in raising what is generally thought of as the standard of living, said Castle. The truth was that life was as short and brutish and mean as ever. But people didn't have to pay as much attention to the awful truth. As the living legend of the cruel tyrant in the city and the gentle holy man in the jungle grew, so too did the happiness of the people grow. They were all employed full-time as actors in a play they understood, that any human being anywhere could understand and applaud." so life became a work of art, I marveled. Yes, there was only one trouble with it. Oh, the drama was very tough on the souls of the two main actors, McCabe and Bocconin. As young men, they had been pretty much alike, had both been half-angel, half-pirate. But the drama demanded that the pirate half of Bocconin and the angel half of McCabe wither away, and McCabe and Bocconin paid a terrible price in agony for the happiness of the people, McCabe knowing the agony of the tyrant, and Bokonan, knowing the agony of the saint. They both became, for all practical purposes, insane. Castle crooked the index finger of his left hand. And then people really did start dying on the Hayuk. But Bocconin was never caught, I asked. McCabe never went that crazy. He never made a really serious effort to catch Bocconin. It would have been easy to do. Why didn't he catch him? McKay was always sane enough to realize that without the holy man to war against, he himself would become meaningless. Papa Manzano understands that, too. Do people still die on the hook? It's inevitably fatal. Uh, I mean, I said, does Papa really have people executed that way? He executes one every two years, just to keep the pot boiling, so to speak. He sighed, looking up at the evening sky. Busy, busy, busy. Sir? It's what we Boconanists say, he said, when we feel that a lot of mysterious things are going on. You? I was amazed. A Boconanist, too? He gazed at me levelly. You, too. You'll find out. Chapter 80 The Waterfall Strainers Angela and Newt were on the cantilevered terrace with Julian Castle and me. We had cocktails. There was still no word from Frank. Both Angela and Newt, it appeared, were fairly heavy drinkers. Castle told me that his days as a playboy had cost him a kidney, and that he was unhappily compelled, perforce, to stick to ginger ale. Angela, when she got a few drinks into her, complained of how the world had swindled her father. He gave so much, and they gave him so little. I pressed her for examples of the world's stinginess, and I got some exact numbers. General Forge and Foundry gave him a $45 bonus for every patent his work led to, she said. That's the same patent bonus they paid anybody in the company. She shook her head mournfully. $45. And just think what some of those patents were for. Hmm, I said. I assume he got a salary, too. The most he ever made was $28,000 a year. Well, I'd say that was pretty good. She got very huffy. You know what movie stars make? A lot, sometimes. You know Dr. Breed made ten thousand more dollars a year than father did? That was certainly an injustice. I'm sick of injustice. She was so shrilly exercised that I changed the subject. I asked Julian Castle what he thought had become of the painting he had thrown down the waterfall. There's a little village at the bottom, he told me. Five or ten shacks, I'd say. It's Papa Manzano's birthplace, incidentally. The waterfall ends in a big stone bowl there. The villages uh, have a net made out of chicken wire stretched across a notch in the bowl. Water spills out through the notch into a stream. And Newt's painting is in the net now, you think? I asked. This is a poor country, in case you haven't noticed, said Castle. Nothing stays in the net very long. I imagine Ute's painting is being dried in the sun by now, along with the butt of my cigar. Four square feet of gummy canvas— The four milled and mitered sticks of the stretcher, some tacks, too, and a cigar. All in all, a pretty nice catch for some poor, poor man. "'I could just scream sometimes,' said Angela, "'when I think about how much some people get paid and how little they paid Father, and how much he gave!' She was on the edge of a crying jag. "'Don't cry,' Newt begged her gently. "'Sometimes I can't help it,' she urged. "'Go get your clarinet,' urged Newt. "'That always helps.' I thought at first that this was a fairly comical suggestion, but then from Angela's reaction I learned that the suggestion was serious and practical. "'When I get this way,' she said to Castle and me, "'sometimes it's the only thing that helps.' She was too shy to get to her clarinet right away. We had to keep begging her to play, and she had to have two more drinks. "'She's really just wonderful,' Little Newt promised. "'I'd love to hear you play,' said Castle. "'All right.' said Angela finally as she rose unsteadily. All right, I will. When she was out of earshot, Newt apologized for her. She's had a tough time. She needs a rest. She's been sick, I asked. Her husband is mean as hell to her, said Newt. He showed us that he hated Angela's handsome young husband, the extremely successful Harrison C. Connors, president of Fabritech. He hardly ever comes home and when he does, he's drunk and generally covered with lipstick. From the way she talked, I said, I thought it was a very happy marriage. Little Newt held his hands six inches apart, and he spread his fingers. See the cat? See the cradle? Chapter 81 A White Bride for the Son of a Pullman Porter I did not know what was going to come from Angela's clarinet. No one could have imagined what was going to come from there. I expected something pathological, but I did not expect the depth, the violence, and the almost intolerable beauty of the disease. Angela moistened and warmed the mouthpiece, but did not blow a single preliminary note. Her eyes glazed over, and her long, bony fingers twittered idly over the noiseless keys. I waited anxiously, and I remembered what Marvin Breed had told me, that Angela's one escape from her bleak life with her father was to her room where she would lock the door and play along with phonograph records. Newt now put on a long-playing record on the large phonograph in the room off the terrace. He came back with the record slipcase, which he handed to me. The record was called Cat House Piano. It was of Unaccompanied Piano by Mead Lux Lewis. Since Angela, in order to deepen her trance, let Lewis play his first number without joining him, I read some of what the Jack had said about Lewis. Born in Louisville, Kentucky in 1905, I read, Mr. Lewis didn't turn to music until he had passed his 16th birthday, and then the instrument provided by his father was the violin. A year later, young Lewis chanced to hear Jimmy Yancey play the piano. This, as Lewis recalls, was the real thing. Soon, I read, Lewis was teaching himself to play the boogie-woogie piano, absorbing all that was possible from the older Yancey, who remained until his death a close friend and idol to Mr. Lewis. Since his father was a Pullman porter, I read, the Lewis family lived near the railroad. The rhythm of the train soon became a natural pattern to young Lewis, and he composed the boogie-woogie solo, now a classic of its kind, which became known as Honky Tonk Train Blues. I looked up from my reading. The first number on the record was done. The phonograph needle was now scratching its slow way across the void to the second. The second number I learned from the jacket was Dragon Blues— Mead Lux Lewis played four bars alone, and then Angela Honecker joined in. Her eyes were closed. I was flabbergasted. She was great. She improvised around the music of the Pullman Porter's son, went from liquid lyricism to rasping lechery to the shrill skittishness of a frightened child to a heroine nightmare. Her glissandi spoke of heaven and hell and all that lay between. Such music from such a woman could only be a case of schizophrenia or demonic possession— My hair stood on end, as though Angela were rolling on the floor, foaming at the mouth and babbling fluent Babylonian. When the music was done, I shrieked at Julian Castle, who was transfixed too. My God, life! Who can understand even one little minute of it? Don't try, he said. Just pretend you understand. That's... that's very good advice. I went limp. Castle quoted another poem. Tiger got to hunt, bird got to fly, man got to sit and wonder why, why, why. Tiger got to sleep, bird got to land, man got to tell himself he understand. What's that from? I asked. What could it possibly be from but the books of Bokonin? I'd love to see a copy sometime. Copies are hard to come by, said Castle. They aren't printed, they're made by hand, and of course there is no such thing as a completed copy since Bokonin is adding things every day. Little Newt snorted. Religion! Beg your pardon, Castle said. See the cat? asked Mute. See the cradle? Chapter 82 Zama Kibo Major General Franklin Honecker didn't appear for supper. He telephoned and insisted on talking to me and to no one else. He told me that he was keeping a vigil by Papa's bed, that Papa was dying in great pain. Frank sounded scared and lonely. Look, I said, Why don't I go back to my hotel, and you and I can get together later when this crisis is over. No, 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 you stay right there. I want you to be where I can get a hold of you right away. He was panicky about my slipping out of his grasp. Since I couldn't account for his interest in me, I began to feel panic too. Could you give me some idea of what you want to see me about, I asked. Not over the telephone. Something about your father? Something about you? Something I've done? Something you're going to do? I heard a chicken clucking in the background of Frank's end of the line. I heard a door open, and xylophone music came from some chamber. The music was again, when day is done. And then the door was closed, and I couldn't hear the music anymore. I'd appreciate it if you'd give me some small hint of what you expect me to do, so I can sort of get set, I said. Zama Kibo. What? It's a Boconinist word. I don't know any Boconanist words. Julian Castle's there? Yes. Ask him, said Frank. I gotta go now. He hung up. So I asked Julian Castle what Zamakibo meant. You want a simple answer or a whole answer? Well, let's start with a simple one. Fate. Inevitable destiny. Chapter 83. Dr. Schlichter von Koenigswald approaches the break-even point. Cancer, said Julian Castle at dinner when I told him that Papa was dying in pain. Cancer of what? Cancer of about everything. You say he collapsed on the reviewing stand today? He sure did, said Angela. That was the effect of drugs, Castle declared. He's at the point now where drugs and pain just about balance out. More drugs would kill him. I'd kill myself, I think, murmured Newt. He was sitting on a sort of folding high chair he took with him when he went visiting. It was made of aluminum tubing and canvas. It beats sitting on a dictionary, an atlas, and a telephone book he'd said when he erected it. That's what Corporal McCabe did, of course, said Castle. He named his major domo as his successor, then he shot himself. Cancer too, I asked. I can't be sure. I I don't think so, though. Unreviled villainy just wore him out, is my guess. That was all before my time. This certainly is a cheerful conversation, said Angela. I think everybody would agree that these are cheerful times, said Castle. Well, I said to him, I think you would have more reasons for being cheerful than most, doing what you're doing with your life. I once had a yacht, too, you know. I I don't follow you. Having a yacht is a reason for being more cheerful than most, too. If you aren't Papa's doctor, I said, who is? One of my staff, a uh, Dr. Schlichter von Koenigswald, A German? Vaguely. He was in the SS for fourteen years. He was a camp physician at Auschwitz for six of those years. Doing penance at the House of Hope and Mercy, is he? Yes, said Castle, and making great strides, too, saving lives right and left. Good for him. Yes, if he keeps going at his present rate, working night and day, the number of people he saved will equal the number of people he let die. In the year 3010. So there's another member of my caress, Dr. Schlichter von Kindingswald. Chapter 84 Blackout Three hours after supper, Frank still hadn't come home. Julian Castle excused himself and went back to the house of hope and mercy in the jungle. Angela and Newton and I sat on the cantilevered terrace. The lights of Bolivar were lovely below us. There was a great illuminated cross on top of the administration building of Manzano Airport. It was motor-driven, turning slowly, boxing the compass with electric piety. There were other bright places on the island, too, to the north of us. Mountains prevented our seeing them directly but we could see in the sky their balloons of light. I asked Stanley, Frank Honecker's major-domo, to identify for me the sources of the auroras. He pointed them out counterclockwise. House of Hope and Mercy in the Jungle, Papa's Palace, and Fort Jesus. Fort Jesus? The training camp for our soldiers. It's named after Jesus Christ? Sure, why not? There was a new balloon of light growing quickly to the north, Before I could ask what it was, it revealed itself as headlights topping a ridge. The headlights were coming toward us. They belonged to a convoy. The convoy was composed of five American-made army trucks. Machine gunners manned ring mounts on the tops of the cabs. The convoy stopped at Frank's driveway. Soldiers dismounted at once. They set to work on the grounds, digging foxholes and machine gun pits. I went out with Frank's major domo to ask the officer in charge what was going on. We have been ordered to protect the next president of San Lorenzo, said the officer in island dialect. He isn't here now, I informed him. I don't know anything about it, he said. My orders are to dig here. That's all I know. I told Angela and Newt about it. Do you think there's any real danger? Angela asked me. I'm a stranger here myself, I said. At that moment there was a power failure. Every electric light in San Lorenzo went out. Chapter 85 a pack of FOMA. Frank's servants brought us gasoline lanterns, told us that power failures were common in San Lorenzo, that there was no cause for alarm. I found that disquiet was hard for me to set aside, however, since Frank had spoken of my zamakibo. He had made me feel as though my own free will were as irrelevant as the free will of a piggywig arriving at the Chicago stockyards. I remembered again the stone angel in Ilium, and I listened to the soldiers outside, to their clinking, chunking, murmuring labors. I was unable to concentrate on the conversation of Angela and Newt, though they got onto a fairly interesting subject. They told me that their father had had an identical twin. They had never met him. His name was Rudolph. The last they had heard of him, he was a music box manufacturer in Zurich, Switzerland. Father hardly ever mentioned him, said Angela. Father hardly ever mentioned anybody, Newt declared. There was a sister of the old man, too, they told me, Her name was Celia. She raised giant schnauzers on Shelter Island, New York. She always sends us a Christmas card, said Angela, with a picture of a giant schnauzer on it, said little Newt. Sure is funny how different people in different families turn out, Angela observed. That's very true and well said, I agreed. I excused myself from the glittering company, and I asked Stanley, the major domo, if there happened to be a copy of the Books of Boconan about the house. Stanley pretended not to know what I was talking about. And then he grumbled that the books of Bokonin were filth, and then he insisted that anyone who read them should die on the hook, and then he brought me a copy from Frank's bedside table. It was a heavy thing, about the size of an unabridged dictionary. It was written by hand. I trundled it off to my bedroom, to my slab of rubber on living rock. There was no index, so my search for the implications of Zamakibo was difficult, was in fact fruitless that night. I learned some things, but they were scarcely helpful— I learned of the Bocodinist cosmogony, for instance, where Borasisi the sun held Pabu the moon in his arms and hoped that Pabu would bear him a fiery child. But poor Pabu gave birth to children that were cold, that did not burn, and Borasisi threw them away in disgust. These were the planets who circled their terrible father at a safe distance. Then poor Pabu herself was cast away, and she went to live with her favorite child, which was Earth. Earth was Pabu's favorite because it had people on it, and the people looked up at her and loved her and sympathized. And what opinion did Bokonin hold of his own cosmogony? FOMA! Lies, he wrote. A pack of FOMA! Chapter 86 Two Little Jugs It's hard to believe that I slept at all, but I must have, for otherwise how could I have found myself awakened by a series of bangs and a flood of light? I rolled out of bed at the first bang and ran to the heart of the house in the brainless ecstasy of a volunteer fireman. I found myself rushing headlong at Mute and Angela, who were fleeing from beds of their own. We all stopped short, sheepishly analyzing the nightmarish sounds around us, sorting them out as coming from a radio, from an electric dishwasher, from a pump, all restored to noisy life by the return of electric power. The three of us awakened enough to realize that there was humor in our situation that we had reacted in amusingly human ways to a situation that seemed mortal but wasn't. And to demonstrate my mastery over my illusory fate, I turned the radio off. We all chuckled. And we all vied in saving face to be the greatest student of human nature, the person with the quickest sense of humor. Newt was the quickest. He pointed out to me that I had my passport and my billfold and my wristwatch in my hands. I had no idea what i I'd grabbed in the face of death, didn't know i grabbed anything, I countered hilariously by asking Angela and Newt why it was that they both carried little thermos jugs, identical red and grey jugs, capable of holding about three cups of coffee. It was news to them both that they were carrying such jugs. They were shocked to find them in their hands. They were spared making an explanation by more banging outside. I was bound to find out what the banging was right away, and with a brazenness as unjustified as my earlier panic, I investigated found Frank Honecker outside tinkering with a motor generator set mounted on a truck. The generator was the new source of our electricity. The gasoline motor that drove it was backfiring and smoking. Frank was trying to fix it. He had the heavenly Mona with him. She was watching him, as always, gravely. Boy, have I got news for you, he yelled at me, and he led the way back into the house. Angela and Newt were still in the living room, but somehow, somewhere, they had managed to get rid of their peculiar thermos jugs. The contents of those jugs, of course, were parts of the legacies from Dr. Felix Honecker, were parts of the wompeter of my carass, were chips of Ice-9. Frank took me aside. How awake are you? As awake as I ever was. I hope you're really wide awake, because we gotta have a talk right now. Start talking. Let's get some privacy. Frank told Mona to make herself comfortable. "'We'll call you if we need you.' I looked at Mona, meltingly, and I thought that I had never needed anyone as much as I needed her. Chapter 87 The Cut of My Jib About this Franklin Honecker, the pinch-faced child, spoke with the timber and conviction of a kazoo. I had heard it said in the army that such and such a man spoke like a man with a paper rectum. Such a man was General Honecker.' Poor Frank had had almost no experience in talking to anyone, having spent a furtive childhood as Secret Agent X-9. Now, hoping to be hearty and persuasive, he said tinny things to me, like, I like the cut of your jib, and I want to talk cold turkey to you, man to man. And he took me down into what he called his den, in order that we might call a spade a spade and let the chips fall where they may. So we went down steps cut into a cliff and into a natural cave that was beneath and behind the waterfall. There were a couple of drawing tables down there, three pale bare-boned Scandinavian chairs, a bookcase containing books on architecture, books in German, French, Finnish, Italian, English. All was lit by electric lights, lights that pulsed with the panting of the motor generator set. And the most striking thing about the cave was that there were pictures painted on the walls, Painted with kindergarten boldness, painted with the flat clay, earth, and charcoal colors of very early man. I did not have to ask Frank how old the cave paintings were. I was able to date them by their subject. The paintings were not of mammoths or saber-toothed tigers or ittyphalic cave bears. The paintings treated endlessly the aspects of Mona Amans Manzano as a little girl. This, uh, This is where Mona's father worked? I asked. That's right. "'He was the Finn who designed the House of Hope and Mercy in the jungle. "'I know. "'That isn't what I brought you down here to talk about. "'This is something about your father? "'This is about you!' "'Frank put his hand on my shoulder, and he looked me in the eye. "'The effect was dismaying. "'Frank meant to inspire camaraderie, "'but his head looked to me like a bizarre little owl, "'blinded by light and perched on a tall white post. "'Maybe you'd better come to the point.' "'There's no sense in beating around the bush,' he said.' I'm a pretty good judge of character, if I do say so myself, and I like the cut of your jib. Thank you. I think you and I could really hit it off. I have no doubt of it. we both got things that mesh. I was grateful when he took his hand from my shoulder. He meshed the fingers of his hands like gear teeth. One hand represented him, I suppose, and the other represented me. We need each other. He wiggled his fingers to show me how gears worked. I was silent for some time, though outwardly friendly. "'Do you get my meaning?' asked Frank at last. "'You and I were going to do something together.' "'That's right!' Frank clapped his hands. "'You're a worldly person, used to meeting the public, "'and I'm a technical person, used to working behind the scenes, "'making things go. "'How could you possibly know what kind of a person I am we've just met? "'Your clothes, the way you talk?' He put his hand on my shoulder again. "'I like the cut of your jib,' so you said. "'Frank was frantic for me to complete his thought, "'to do it enthusiastically, but I was still at sea. "'Am I to understand that that you are offering me "'some kind of job here, here in San Lorenzo?' "'He clapped his hands. He was delighted. "'That's right! What would you say to a $100,000 a year?' "'Good God!' I cried. "'What would I have to do for that?' "'Practically nothing.' and you drink out of gold goblets every night and eat off gold plates and have a palace all your own. What's the job? President of the Republic of San Lorenzo. Chapter 88. Why Frank Couldn't Be President Me? President? I gasped. Who else is there? Nuts! Don't say no until you've really thought about it. Frank watched me anxiously. No! You haven't really thought about it. "'Enough to know it's crazy.' "'Frank made his fingers into gears again. "'We'd work together. "'I'd be backing you up all the time.' "'Good. "'So if I got plugged from the front, you'd get it too?' "'Plugged? "'Shot. "'Assassinated.' "'Frank was mystified. "'Why would anybody shoot you?' "'So he could get to be president.' "'Frank shook his head. "'Nobody in San Lorenzo wants to be president,' he promised me. "'It's against their religion.' It's against your religion too? I thought you were going to be the next president. I, he said, and found it hard to go on. He looked haunted. You what? I asked. He faced the sheet of water that curtained the cave. Maturity, the way I understand it, he told me, is knowing what your limitations are. He wasn't far from Bokonin in defining maturity. Maturity, Bocconin tells us, is a bitter disappointment for which no remedy exists, unless laughter can be said to remedy anything. I know I've got limitations, Frank continued. They're the same limitations my father had. Oh? I've got a lot of very good ideas, just the way my father did, Frank told me, and the waterfall. But he was no good at facing the public, and neither am I. Chapter 89 Duffel ''You'll take the job?'' Frank inquired anxiously. ''No,'' I told him. ''Do you know anybody who might want the job?'' Frank was giving a classic illustration of what Bocconin calls duffel. ''Duffel, in the Bocconinist sense, is the destiny of thousands upon thousands of persons when placed in the hands of a stuppa. A stuppa is a fog-bound child.'' I laughed. ''Something's funny?'' ''Pay no attention when I laugh,'' I begged him. ''I'm a notorious pervert in that respect.'' Are you laughing at me? I shook my head. No. Word of honor? Word of honor. People used to make fun of me all the time. Oh, you must have imagined that. They used to yell things at me. I didn't imagine that. People are unkind sometimes, without meaning to be, I suggested. I wouldn't have given him my word of honor on that. You know what they used to yell at me? No. They used to yell at me, Hey, X-9, where you going? That doesn't sound too bad. That's what they used to call me, said Frank in sulky reminiscence. Secret Agent X-9. I didn't tell him I knew that already. Where you going, X-9? Frank echoed again. I imagined what the taunters had been like, imagined where fate had eventually goosed and shivied them to. The wits who had yelled at Frank were surely nicely settled in death-like jobs at General Forge and Foundry, at Ilium Power and Light, at the Telephone Company— And here, by God, was Secret Agent X-9, a major general, offering to make me king, in a cave that was curtained by a tropical waterfall. They really would have been surprised if I'd stopped and told them where I was going. You mean you had some premonition you'd end up here? It was a Boconanist question. I was going to Jack's hobby shop, he said, with no sense of anticlimax. Oh, they all knew I was going there, but they didn't know what really went on there. They would have been really surprised, especially the girls, if they'd found out what really went on. (laughs) The girls didn't think I knew anything about girls. What really went on? I was screwing Jack's wife every day. That's how come I fell asleep all the time in high school. That's how come I never achieved my full potential. He roused himself from this sordid recollection. Come on, be president of San Lorenzo. You'd be real good at it with your personality... "'Please!' Chapter Ninety Only One Catch And the time of night, and the cave, and the waterfall, and the stone angel in Ilium, and two hundred and fifty thousand cigarettes, and three thousand quarts of booze, and two wives, and no wife, and no love waiting for me anywhere, and the listless life of an ink-stained hack, and Pabu the moon, and Borisisi the sun, and their children— all things conspired to form one cosmic vindit, one mighty shove into Boconanism, into the belief that God was running my life and that he had work for me to do. And inwardly, I sarooned, which is to say that I acquiesced to the seeming demands of my vindit. Inwardly, I agreed to become the next president of San Lorenzo. Outwardly, I was still guarded, suspicious. There must be a catch, I hedged. There isn't! There'll be an election? There never has been. We'll just announce who the new president is. And nobody will object? Nobody objects to anything. They aren't interested. They don't care. There has to be a catch. There's kind of one, Frank admitted. I knew it. I began to shrink from my vindit. What is it? What's the catch? Well, it isn't really a catch, because you don't have to do it if you don't want to. It would be a good idea, though. Let's hear this great idea. Well, if you're going to be president, I think you really ought to marry Mona. But you don't have to if you don't want to. You're the boss. She would have me? She'd have me, she'd have you. All you have to do is ask her. Why should she say yes? It's predicted in the books of Bocconin that she'll marry the next president of San Lorenzo, said Frank. Chapter 91. Mona Frank brought Mona to her father's cave and left us alone. We had difficulty in speaking at first. I was shy. Her gown was diaphanous. Her gown was azure. It was a simple gown, caught lightly at the waist by a gossamer thread. All else was shaped by Mona herself. Her breasts were like pomegranates, or what you will, but like nothing so much as a young woman's breasts. Her feet were all but bare. Her toenails were exquisitely manicured. Her scanty sandals were gold. How... How do you do? I asked. My heart was pounding, blood boiled in my ears. It is not possible to make a mistake, she assured me. I did not know that this was a customary greeting given by all Boconanists when meeting a shy person. So I responded with a feverish discussion of whether it was possible to make a mistake or not. Oh, my God, you have no idea how many mistakes I've already made. You, you're looking at the world's champion mistake-maker, I blurted, and so on. "'Do you have any idea what Frank just said to me?' "'About me? "'About everything, but especially about you. "'He told you that you could have me if you wanted?' "'Yes.' "'That's true. "'I... I... I... I "'Yes? "'I I don't know what to say next. "'Bokomaru would help,' she suggested. "'What?' "'Take off your shoes,' she commanded. "'And she removed her sandals with the utmost grace.' I am a man of the world, having had, by a reckoning I once made, more than fifty-three women. I can say that I have seen women undress themselves in every way that it can be done. I have watched the curtains part in every variation of the final act. And yet, the one woman who made me groan involuntarily did no more than remove her sandals. I tried to untie my shoes. No bridegroom ever did worse. I got one shoe off, but knotted the other one tight. I tore a thumbnail on the knot, finally ripped off the shoe without untying it. Then off came my socks. Mona was already sitting on the floor, her legs extended, her round arms thrust behind her for support, her head tilted back, her eyes closed. It was up to me now to complete my first, my first, my first great god, Boko Maru. Chapter 92 on the poet's celebration of his first Bokomaru. These are not Bokonin's words, they are mine. Sweet wraith, invisible mist of, I am, my soul, Wraith lovesick or long, or long alone, Wouldst another sweet soul meet? Long have I advised thee ill As to where two souls might tryst, My souls, my souls, my soul, my soul, "'Go there, sweet soul. "'Be kissed. Mm. "'Chapter 93 "'How I Almost Lost My Mona "'Do you find it easier to talk to me now?' "'Mona inquired. "'As though I'd known you for a thousand years,' I confessed. "'I felt like crying. "'I love you, Mona.' "'I love you,' she said it simply. "'Oh, what a fool Frank was!' Oh? To give you up? He did not love me. He was going to marry me only because Papa wanted him to. He loves another. Who? A woman he knew in Ilium. The lucky woman had to be the wife of the owner of Jack's hobby shop. He told you? Tonight, when he freed me to marry you. Mona? Yes? Is... Is there anyone else in your life? She was puzzled. "'Many,' she said at last. "'That you love? "'I love everyone. "'As... "'As much as me?' "'Yes.' "'She seemed to have no idea that this might bother me. "'I got off the floor, sat in a chair, "'and started putting my shoes and socks back on. "'I suppose you... you perform... "'you do what we just did with... "'with other people? "'Bokomaru?' "'Bokomaru.' Of course, I don't want you to do it with anybody but me from now on. I declared tears filled her eyes. she adored her promiscuity was angered that I should try to make her feel shame. I make people happy. love is good, not bad. as your husband, I'll want all your love for myself. She stared at me with widening eyes. a sin what what was what was that a sin what she cried a man who wants all of somebody's love. That's very bad. In the case of marriage, I think it's a very good thing. It's the only thing. She was still on the floor, and I, now with my shoes and socks back on, was standing. I felt very tall, though I'm not very tall. I felt very strong, though I'm not very strong. And I was a respectful stranger to my own voice. My voice had a metallic authority that was new. As I went on talking in ball-peen tones, it dawned on me what was happening, what was happening already. I was already starting to rule. I told Mona that I had seen her performing a sort of vertical Bokomaru with a pilot on the reviewing stand shortly after my arrival. "'You are to have nothing more to do with him,' I told her. "'What is his name?' "'I don't even know,' she whispered. She was looking down now. "'And what about young Philip Castle?' You mean Boko Maru? I mean anything and everything. As I understand it, you two grew up together. Yes. Bokonin tutored you both. Yes? The recollection made her radiant again. I suppose there was plenty of Boko Maruing in those days. Oh yes, she said happily. You aren't to see him any more either. Is that clear? No. No. I will not marry a sin wat. She stood. Goodbye, "'Goodbye!' I was crushed. Bokonin tells us it is very wrong not to love everyone exactly the same. "'What does your religion say?' I, "'I don't have one.' "'I do.' "'I had stopped ruling.' "'I see you do,' I said. "'Goodbye, man with no religion.' She went to the stone staircase. "'Mona?' She stopped. "'Yes?' "'Could I have your religion if I wanted it?' of course. I want it. Good. I love you. And I love you, I sighed. Chapter 94. The Highest Mountain So I became betrothed at dawn to the most beautiful woman in the world, and I agreed to become the next president of San Lorenzo. Papa wasn't dead yet, and it was Frank's feeling that I should get Papa's blessing, if possible, So as Borisisi the sun came up, Frank and I drove to Papa's castle in a jeep we commandeered from the troops, guarding the next president. Mona stayed at Frank's. I kissed her sacredly, and she went to sacred sleep. Over the mountains Frank and I went, through groves of wild coffee trees, with the flamboyant sunrise on our right. It was in the sunrise that the cetacean majesty of the highest mountain on the island, of Mount McCabe, made itself known to me. It was a fearful hump, A blue whale, with one queer stone plug on its back for a peak. In scale with a whale, the plug may have been the stump of a snapped harpoon, and it seemed so unrelated to the rest of the mountain that I asked Frank if it had been built by men. He told me that it was a natural formation. Moreover, he declared that no man, as far as he knew, had ever been to the top of Mount McCabe. It doesn't look very tough to climb, I commented, save for the plug at the top, The mountain presented inclines no more forbidding than courthouse steps, and the plug itself, from a distance at any rate, seemed conveniently laced with ramps and ledges. "'Is it sacred or something?' I asked. "'Maybe it was once, but not since Boconan.' "'Then why hasn't anybody climbed it?' "'Nobody's felt like it yet. Maybe I'll climb it. "'Go ahead, nobody's stopping you.' We rode in silence. What is sacred to Bokodinists? I asked after a while. Not even God as near as I can tell. Nothing? Just one thing. I made some guesses. The ocean? The sun? Man, said Frank. That's all. Just man. Chapter 95 I See the Hook We came at last to the castle. It was low and black and cruel, Antique cannons still lolled on the battlements. Vines and bird nests clogged the crenels, the machicolations, and the balustrariae. Its parapets to the north were continuous with the scarp of a monstrous precipice that fell six hundred feet straight down to the lukewarm sea. It posed the question posed by all such stone piles. How had puny men moved stones so big? And, like all such stone piles, it answered the question itself. Dumb terror had moved those stones so big. The castle was built according to the wish of Tumbumwa, Emperor of San Lorenzo, a demented man, an escaped slave. Tumbumwa was said to have found its design in a child's picture book. A gory book it must have been. Just before we reached the palace gate, the ruts carried us through a rustic arch made of two telephone poles and a beam that spanned them. Hanging from the middle of the beam was a huge iron hook. There was a sign impaled on the hook. This hook, the sign proclaimed, is reserved for Bokonin himself. I turned to look at the hook again, and that thing of sharp iron communicated to me that I was really going to rule. I would chop down the block, and I flattered myself that I was going to be a firm, just, and kindly ruler, and that my people would prosper. Fata Morgana, Mirage Chapter 96 Bell Book and Chicken in a Hat Box Frank and I couldn't get right in to see Papa. Dr. Schlichter von Koenigswald, the physician in attendance, muttered that we would have to wait about a half an hour. So Frank and I waited in the anteroom of Papa's suite, a room without windows. The room was thirty feet square, furnished with several rugged benches and a card table. The card table supported an electric fan. The walls were stone. There were no pictures, no decorations of any sort on the walls. There were iron rings fixed to the wall, however seven feet off the floor and at intervals of six feet. I asked Frank if the room had ever been a torture chamber. He told me that it had, and that the manhole cover on which I stood was the lid of an oubliette. There was a listless guard in the anteroom. There was also a Christian minister who was ready to take care of Papa's spiritual needs as they arose. He had a brass dinner bell and a hat box with holes drilled in it and a Bible and a butcher knife all laid out on the bench beside him. He told me there was a live chicken in the hatbox. The chicken was quiet, he said, because he had fed it tranquilizers. Like all San Lorenzans past the age of twenty-five, he looked at least sixty. He told me that his name was Dr. Vox Humana, that he was named after an organ stop that had struck his mother when San Lorenzo Cathedral was dynamited in 1923. His father, he told me without shame, was unknown. I asked him what particular Christian sect he represented and I observed, frankly, that the chicken and the butcher knife were novelties, insofar as my understanding of Christianity went. The bell, I commented, I can understand how that might fit in nicely. He turned out to be an intelligent man. His doctorate, which he invited me to examine, was awarded by the Western Hemisphere University of the Bible of Little Rock, Arkansas. He made contact with the university through a classified ad in Popular Mechanics, he told me. He said that the motto of the university had become his own— and that it explained the chicken and the butcher knife the motto of the university was this make religion live he said that he had had to feel his way along with christianity since catholicism and protestantism had been outlawed along with bocconinism so if i'm going to be a christian under those conditions i have to make up a lot of new stuff zo so, he said in dialect yefibam b'amgon be christian who nor konistin you have on your own, stop. Dr. Schlichter von Koenigswald now came out of Papa's suite, looking very German, very tired. You can see Papa now. We'll be careful not to tire him, Frank promised. If you could kill him, said von Koenigswald, I think he'd be grateful. Chapter 97 The Stinking Christian Papa Manzano and his merciless disease were in a bed that was made of a golden dinghy Tiller, painter, oarlocks, and all, all gilt. His bed was the lifeboat of Bocconin's old schooner, the Lady's Slipper. It was the lifeboat of the ship that had brought Bocconin and Corporal McCabe to San Lorenzo so long ago. The walls of the room were white, but Papa radiated pain so hot and bright that the walls seemed bathed in angry red. He was stripped from the waist up, and his glistening belly wall was knotted. His belly shivered like a luffing sail. Around his neck hung a chain with a cylinder the size of a rifle cartridge for a pendant. I supposed that the cylinder contained some magic charm. I was mistaken. It contained a splinter of Ice Nine. Papa could hardly speak. His teeth chattered and his breathing was beyond control. Papa's agonized head was at the bow of the dinghy, bent back. Mona's xylophone was near the bed. She had apparently tried to soothe Papa with music the previous evening. Papa? whispered frank "goodbye" papa gasped his eyes were bugging sightless "i brought a friend goodbye he's going to be the next president of san lorenzo he'll be a much better president than i could be" ice papa whimpered "he asks for ice" said von kanigsvald "when we bring it he does not want it" papa rolled his eyes he relaxed his neck took the weight of his body from the crown of his head And then he arched his neck again. Does not matter, he said. Who is president of... He did not finish. I finished for him. San Lorenzo? San Lorenzo, he agreed. He managed a crooked smile. Good luck, he croaked. Thank you, sir, I said. Doesn't matter. Bocconin. Get Bocconin. I attempted a sophisticated reply to this last. I remembered that, for the joy of the people, Bokonin was always to be chased, was never to be caught. I will get him. Tell him. I leaned closer in order to hear the message from Papa to Bokonin. Tell him I am sorry I did not kill him, said Papa. I will. You kill him. Yes, sir. Papa gained control enough of his voice to make it commanding. I mean, really? I said nothing to that. I was not eager to kill anyone. He teaches the people lies and lies and lies. Kill him and teach the people truth. Yes, sir. You and Honecker, you teach them science. Yes, sir, we will, I promised. Science is magic that works. He fell silent, relaxed, closed his eyes. And then he whispered, Last rites. Von Keniswald called Dr. Vox Humana in. Dr. Humana took his tranquilized chicken out of the hat box, preparing to administer Christian last rites as he understood them. Papa opened one eye. Not you, he sneered at Dr. Humana. Get out. Sir, asked Dr. Humana. I am a member of the Bocconinist faith. Papa wheezed. Get out, you stinking Christian! Chapter 98. Last Rites So I was privileged to see the last rites of the Boconanist faith. We made an effort to find someone among the soldiers and the household staff who would admit that he knew the rites and would give them to Papa. We got no volunteers. That was hardly surprising, with a hook and an oubliette so near. So Dr. von Königsvold said that he would have a go with the job. He had never administered the rites before, but he had seen Julian Castle do it hundreds of times. Are you a boconinist I asked him. I agree with one Boconinist idea. I agree that all religions, including Bokoninism, are nothing but lies. Will this bother you as a scientist? I inquired. To go through a ritual like this? I am a very bad scientist. I will do anything to make a human being feel better even if it's unscientific. No scientist worthy of the name could say such a thing, and he climbed into the golden boat with Papa. He sat in the stern. Cramped quarters obliged him to have the gold tiller under one arm. He wore sandals without socks, and he took these off, and then he rolled back the covers at the foot of the bed, exposing Papa's bare feet. He put the soles of his feet against Papa's feet, assuming the classical position for Boko Maru. Chapter 99 God meet mot got mate mott crooned Dr. von Kranigswald. God meet mot echoed Papa Manzano, God made mud was what they'd said, each in his own dialect. I will here abandon the dialects of the litany God got lonesome said von caningswald God got lonesome, so God said to some of the mud, sit up so God said to some of the mud, sit up. See all I've made, said God, the hills, the sea, the sky, the stars. See all I've made, said God, the hills, the sea, the sky, the stars. And I was some of the mud that got to sit up and look around. And I was some of the mud that got to sit up and look around. Lucky me, lucky mud. Lucky me, lucky mud. Tears were streaming down Papa's cheeks. I, mud sat up and saw what a nice job God had done. I, mud, sat up and saw what a nice job God had done. Nice going, God. Nice going, God. Papa said it with all his heart. Nobody but you could have done it, God. I certainly couldn't have. Nobody but you could have done it, God. I certainly couldn't have. I feel very unimportant compared to you. I feel very unimportant compared to you. The only way I can feel the least bit important is to think of all the mud that didn't even get to sit up and look around. The only way I can feel the least bit important is to think of all the mud that didn't even get to sit up and look around. I got so much, and most mud got so little. I got so much, and most mud got so little. Thank you for the honor, cried Dr. von Königswald. Thank you for the honor, wheezed Papa. What they had said was, thank you for the honor. Now mud lies down again and goes to sleep, now mud lies down again and goes to sleep. What memories for mud to have, what memories for mud to have, what interesting other kinds of sitting up mud I met, what interesting other kinds of sitting up mud I met. I loved everything I saw, I loved everything I saw. Good night, good night, I will go to heaven now. I will go to heaven now. I can hardly wait, I can hardly wait to find out for certain what my wompeter was, to find out for certain what my wompeter was and who was in my caress and who was in my caress and all the good things our caress did for you and all the good things our caress did for you. Amen. Amen.